And so here we are, part five of our series, I Am, the final part. And this series is all about identifying what we mean when we say the word God. Right? What does that even mean? And especially in, in, a, in an age where our cities have so many, it's a melting pot of, of ethnicities, right? We've got so many people from around like different countries and different uh, religious beliefs. So when someone says they believe in God, is it the same God that, that you believe in? When someone says, I believe in the man upstairs, who is the man upstairs? Is it like your, you live in a single story house, you don't have a man upstairs. But what, what do we actually mean when we say these phrases? And what does the Bible actually reveal about who Jesus is? And this is what this series is all about. So if you're looking for a subtitle to uh, my message this morning, it is, I am the name. I am the name. It's just kind of like, just doesn't kind of make sense, but you'll get there. I am the name. I, re- I remember when I was 18 years of age, I, when I just turned 18, I became a Christian. Literally became a Christian. And my first week as a Christian, I had so many questions. In fact, I still have so many questions, you know, it just never stops. But one of the biggest questions I had is that, because um, my first week as a Christian, I picked up the Bible for the first time and, and I thought, you know what? I need to read the Ten Commandments. You know, who, you know, if you're a new Christian, you go, oh, well, let's follow. What, what are the rules? What do we do? What does it mean to be a Christian? So let's have a look. Let's start with the Ten Commandments. And you know what I read in the Ten Commandments? I read that it, it says to worship God alone. Have no other gods before me. And, and, I, and, I, and I got a little bit confused because here we were worshiping Jesus. And I'm thinking, are we violating the Ten Commandments by worshipping Jesus? So I'm away from youth group. I'm walking home with me and my mate, my mate who brought me along to youth and where I gave my heart to Jesus. And I asked him that question. I was thinking, I'm just, just don't understand this. What, what, I mean, why do we worship Jesus when we should be worshipping God alone? And his answer was very, very, very simple and very short. All he said was, oh, that's easy. That's, what, that's how he starts. Oh, it's easy. God and Jesus, they're the same. And that's all he said to me. God and Jesus, they are the same. And you know what? It was like, it was like a, a, a penny drop moment in my life and the lights came on. I was going, whoa, that makes a lot of sense. That does make a lot. I, I totally understand what that means. But, but here's, here's the thing. The, one of the big, big doctrines within our, within our faith is what we call the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity that, that we serve one God, we sung it this morning, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? We declared it this morning. And so, yeah, so the Trin- Holy Trinity is that we believe in one God coexisting in three distinct persons, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. And for a lot of people, that's really confusing. What does that even mean? And we have all this confusion around. In fact, there, there are people out there who argue that, that, that the Trinity was, this Trinity theology is just made up, that, um, that a bunch of Christians made it up hundreds and, years, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact when Jesus died and rose again. And they just made the group, a council got together and came up, well, you know, let's, let's make, and they made up this Trinity theology. And what's really interesting is this, the Trinity, the word Trinity does not even appear in our Bible. So where does this word Trinity come from? What does it even mean? You know, are we violating the Ten Commandments when we say this word Trinity? And another thing is, a lot of us, especially in today, you know, we might see things on the paper, we see things on social media, and this thing of the mark of the beast, what's going on with the mark of the beast? This is some of the things we're going to get into later on in, in this discussion this morning. But you might be surprised to know 
that this Trinity theology of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, this Trinity theology did not originate with the early church fathers. Did originate with them a hundred years ago after Jesus, after the fact. It didn't originate with them. It did not even originate with the New Testament writers. It didn't even originate with them. But this Trinity theology, it originates in the Old Testament. That's right. In the, the Hebrew Scriptures. In the Hebrew Scriptures itself. This is where this theology originates. So like, for instance, let's, get to, let's go to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63, uh, the prophet Isaiah, he's, he's describing um, the children of Israel and their, their journey to the promised land. Their journey to the promised land, right? And so here we go. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10. This is what it says. But they rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he became the enemy and fought against them. Okay, who do they rebel against and who do they grieve? They grieve the Holy Spirit. They rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. What's really interesting is that when we look up the parallel passage to Isaiah 63, which is slightly longer. It's found in, in Psalms 78. In fact, I've got it side by side so we can see the parallel between the two. It's the same passage, but, uh, but, but retold in Psalm 78. And this is what the parallel passage says in Psalm 78. It says, How often they rebelled against them in the wilderness and grieved his heart in that dry wasteland. Again and again they tested God's patient, patience and provoked the Holy One of Israel. So there we have it. We've got these parallels. They rebelled and they grieved. It's there. We see the parallels there. But here the object is different, right? The object is God, the Holy One of Israel. So who rebelled and who, and who do they rebel against and who do they grieve? Do they rebel and grieve the Holy Spirit? Or do they rebel and grieve against God, the Holy One of Israel? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. The point is that God and the Holy Spirit are interchangeable. Both are God. Both are God. Holy Spirit and God in this passage. In fact, when we go to Exodus chapter 3, what's really interesting, Exodus chapter 3, we've been there before in part 1 of, our, of the series. And this is what it says in, in verse 1 of Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, angel, remember there's this capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Remember in our series, whenever we see these capital letters, right? It's, it's, the, it's our English translators giving us a little clue that, these, that, this, that the original meaning here is not the Hebrew word for, for Lord, which is Adonai, but it's actually God's divine name. It's actually Yahweh. Yahweh's name actually sits there, the angel of Yahweh. This is, this is what it means, right? And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of, the, out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see the great sight while the bush is not burned. So who's in the bush? Who's in this burning bush? It's the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh is in this burning bush. Let's go on to verse 4. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside the sea, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So who's in the bush, right? So the angel of Yahweh is in the bush, and now Yahweh is in the bush. They're both, there are two Yahweh figures in the bush, 
in the burning bush, you've got the angel of Yahweh and you've got Yahweh in the bush at the same time. So who is this angel? Who is this angel? Let's, let's have a look. Let's go to Genesis chapter 31. Who is this angel? The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled or spotted. For I've seen all that Laban has been doing to you. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. Who, who's saying this? It's the angel. What's the angel saying? The angel is saying, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. The angel said that he is the God of Bethel. The God of Bethel. Bethel was the place where Jacob first encountered Yahweh. Right? And now the angel is saying, I am Yahweh. This, this angel figure saying, I am Yahweh. I am the God of of Bethel. In fact, when we read right through the Old Testament, we will see that the angel of Yahweh begins to speak as if he is Yahweh. Right? We begin to see this all the time. And you know what? The ancient Jews, the ancient Israelites, they noticed this as well. They saw this as well. So according to Jewish rabbinic scholar Alan Siegel, and I just like to note that this rabbinic scholar who was Jewish, Alan Siegel, he's not a Christian. He's not a Messianic Jew. He's just a rabbinic scholar. This is what he says. He says that the ancient Jews believed in a two powers in heaven doctrine. They believed in a two powers in heaven doctrine. That one God coexisted as distinct person, as Yahweh God. Yahweh transcended. Yahweh invisible. Yahweh in heaven and everywhere at the same time. And they also believed in Yahweh as a man. That there is two Yahweh figures in heaven. There's Yahweh invisible and Yahweh as a man. This is what's part of their doctrine. This is what they actually believed in. Which is really interesting because when we get to Genesis chapter 19 verse 24, this is what it says. Then Yahweh reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. So in this passage we have two Yahweh figures and they are different characters. Two different characters. When you read the full story, you've got the angel of Yahweh walking with Abraham and talking with them. And now he's saying, and this, the angel of Yahweh begins to call it, and Yahweh called out fire out of Yahweh from heaven, these two figures. And then we, get, then we go down again, and we, and we go down to Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. And it says this, Yahweh is a man. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Yahweh is a man. Yahweh is his name. And the ancient Jews, they looked at this and, and they recognized that there was a Yahweh on earth as a man and Yahweh in heaven and everywhere else at the same time. That there were these two figures at the same time. We also, ha we also have the Holy Spirit thrown in the mix as well for good measure. But they are all referred to as God within the, within the Old Testament uh, scriptures. In fact, Jewish rabbinic scholar Alan Siegel he will go on to say that this two powers in heaven was part of their doctrine right up until the second century. This was part of their doctrine. This was part of their theology right up until the second century. And at, in the second century, it was deemed by the Jewish leaders as a heresy. It was banned from being taught. In fact, it became forbidden. That this teaching was now forbidden. They, they made this whole teaching. It is now forbidden. Why? What happened in the second century? Why all of a sudden you had this part of the Jewish theology, part of their doctrine, and then all of a sudden it is now deemed as a heresy and they said this is now forbidden teaching. What happened? What happened in the second century? The rise of the church. 
So they declared a point of their own theology, heresy, to protect themselves from the rise of Christianity. This explains why Jews, the first converts um, of Jesus, you know, the first, the early church, the very first members of the church were Jews. This explains why they come to know Jesus. They, they began to worship Jesus. They could simultaneously worship the God of Israel and worship, Je- worship Jesus and not feel like they, they are violating um, any part of the Shema. Why? Why did they feel like they, did, they, didn't, they, weren't violating any, they weren't violating the Shema? Because it was already part of their doctrine. They could worship the, the God of Israel and Jesus and yet refuse to acknowledge any other gods at the same time. Why? Because it was already part of of their doctrine, that they recognized that Jesus was the incarnate second Yahweh figure. Jesus was Yahweh as a man. They recognized that. And, and I've got this illustration, and it's these, these, these three circles, right? And, and um, the first one, we've got the first circle, we've got Yahweh, and, it's inter- and they're linked together. They saw this, this one God. They saw Yahweh in heaven, invisible, transcendent, and everywhere. And they saw a second Yahweh figure, uh, uh, Yahweh as, as man, visible. Visible, and then they had the Holy Spirit. Three, all three, all saw God, all distinct, but yet one. They had this theology. And then in the New Testament, we've, I've got the parallel to the circle. The, the New Testament writers began to speak of Yahweh as God the Father. And they recognized that the second Yahweh figure, the visible Yahweh was, was Jesus, that Jesus is the second Yahweh figure and the Holy Spirit. Three and one. And this, this, this is where the Trinitarian theology comes from. Where does it come from? It didn't come from some, some bunch of old Christian dudes hundreds of years after and some kind of council made up the theology. It didn't come from the New Testament writers. The Trinitarian theology comes straight from the Old Testament, straight out of the Hebrew Scriptures themselves. This, this, the three Yahweh figures, this was preparing the Jewish community for the coming of of Jesus. They would reason from scripture, scripture about who Jesus was, what he did, and why he came. They would read it in their own scripture, and they recognized it in Jesus. Jesus is the second Yahweh figure. He is God, he, he, uh, which makes a whole bunch of New Testament passages make sense. Think about it. And now when we read this, we can now read this into the New Testament. For instance, when, when, when John began to write his gospel about the life of Jesus, this is how John begins his gospel. In John chapter 1, this is what he says. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, you, and you'll go, what? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, was not anything made that was made. And go down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, John wasn't trying to be clever when he penned this. He wasn't trying to be clever. He wasn't like, you know what? How can I describe Jesus like that? That's so different to everyone else. He wasn't trying to do that. What is he doing? He's reflecting on the Old Testament and, and what he saw in Jesus and seeing what Jesus did. And, and, and when we get to Jude, Jude, which is found in the New Testament, Jude, Jude is the brother of Jesus. And this is what Jude writes in verse 5. He writes this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. And you're like, wait, what? What did you say? Wait, what, what does it say? That, and we knew that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Wait, 
who delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians? Who delivered them? Depending on which Old Testament passage you read, it's really fascinating when you read the Old Testament passages, it actually has a whole bunch of names. One passage would have that it was Yahweh. Yahweh delivered the Israelites out of the hands of the Egyptians. Then another passage will say it was the angel of Yahweh. Another passage will say that it was God, Elohim, that God delivered them. Another passage would say that it was the presence. It was the presence that delivered them out of the promised land. And now... Now we have these New Testament writers applying this Old Testament thought to Jesus. So who was it that delivered the Israelites out of Egypt? Was it God? Was it Yahweh? Was it the angel? Was it the presence? Or was it Jesus? And the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's the answer. Yes. It's interchangeable. That They are God. They all are God. One God coexisting and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's incredible. And I just love it when, when God, the Bible begins to speak out what's going on. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, Jesus is acting and he's talking like as if he's Yahweh. And this got everybody and unsettled everyone. So who, this guy's, who does this guy think he is? This guy thinks he's, he's Yahweh, right? But he just didn't, didn't, didn't act. That he actually showed them with the miracles and signs and wonders. So the, the New Testament writers, they, they began to describe Jesus in the same manner that the Old Testament writers would, would describe Yahweh. And one of the ways was with, is the name, the name. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, it's like, it's a famous prayer. Famous prayer. Look, churches would, would say this prayer. In fact, we've got them in our songs. It's a well-known song. And, and it goes like this. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his son, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you. I'm not going to sing it. Here we go. <laughs> the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And for many of us, we just stop there, right? We just, okay, that's all I got. But actually, the next part is actually very important. Just important, but that came before. Verse 27, this is what it says. It says, so they will put my name. My name. What's his name? Yahweh. They'll put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. They, they, they will carry my name. They will carry my name. God isn't saying, oh yeah, look, yeah, by the way, let's stamp them. Let's write my name, Yahweh, on their foreheads. For Yahweh, yeah, okay, you're carrying my name, Yahweh. He's not saying that at all. It, it, it's, it's, what they, it's carrying. What are you carrying? The word carry is the Hebrew word nasar, nasar. Carry it, and it's really easy for you to remember because it looks like NASA, N-A-S-A, NASA, and because it means to carry or to lift up, just like NASA, lift up, right? NASA, NASA, this carry, and this is, this is the idea about, about, about putting his name on them so that you may carry his name. And that when you carry his name and you begin to reflect who he is and you begin to represent him, you become his representative. And it's about when God puts his name on you, it's about restoring his image in you. And who you're supposed to be. And it's about carrying, how are you carrying his name? And this is the idea about carrying his name to Nassar, Nassar his name. In fact, the ancient Jews, not just ancient Jews, even Jews today, when they come to refer, when they refer to God, they will not say God's divine name. They will not utter Yahweh. They, they, Yahweh was so sacred, they wouldn't utter it. In their, in their scriptures, it's the word Adonai. But when it came to speaking his name, they would say Hashem, Hashem. They would call him the name. The name. So when they're talking of Yahweh, they go, Hashem, Hashem, the name. Right? Shem, name. Hashem, the name. 
And this is what they begin to do. Whenever they would describe Yahweh, Yahweh is always Hashem, Hashem, Hashem. And what do we find in the Ten Commandments? Right? And whenever you read the Ten Commandments, you're really like, that's got to be important. It's in the Ten Commandments. The, the, it's, the, it's the greatest ten. It's the hit list, right? The famous countdown. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. What does it say? You shall not misuse the what? Hashem. The name of Yahweh, your Elohim. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. You know what's really interesting? The Hebrew word here for misuse is the Hebrew word nasah. Nasah, to carry, to lift up, to carry. See, this isn't about this, this command. Many of us, when we read this, we think it's like, it's something we say verbally. It's a verbal command. Oh, we, let's, I better not say God's name in vain. vain. Oh, honest to God. Oh, you used his name in vain. Or use it as some kind of swear word. That's not what it means. And, and uh, Don't do that anyway, okay? Don't do that anyway. That's not what it means. It's not a verbal command. But it's actually, it's actually carrying his name. How are you representing him? How are you representing Yahweh? If you are carrying his name, how are you representing him? Because if I'm not representing him, I'm carrying his name, but I'm not representing him as I should be, then I'm, I'm carrying his name in vain. And this is what it means. It's not about what we say, it's about what we do. So how are you carrying his name? What does your life look like? Uh, when, when people see you in their workplace, they go, wow, something different about this person. It's just the way they carry themselves because you're carrying the name. And you begin to see everybody differently with love and compassion because of the way you carry them. And when we don't do that, then we're carrying his name in vain. This is what, this is what chapter 10 is all about. Nasah. How are you Nasah Hashem? How are you carrying his name? And this is what it talks. This is almost like Hebrew language. I don't speak Hebrew, by the way. Um, this is what it means. It's, it's the, this Old Testament name in reference to Yahweh is Hashem. 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 And even today, he is Hashem, the name. He is called the, the name. But when we come to the New Testament, when we go to the New Testament, and, and there's this passage, and there's right through, it's also right through the New Testament. For, here's an example in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. You've got the, the, the followers of Jesus. And this is what the followers of Jesus, this is what they're doing. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were, they, that they were counted worthy to suffer this honor for Hashem, for the name. They're not saying for the name of Jesus. They didn't say that. They said, well, I mean, we're, we're worthy to, to suffer this honor for the name of Jesus. No, they just say their name. Right? They take this word for Yahweh and now they apply it to Jesus. That Jesus is Hashem. Why? Because Hashem is, what is Hashem? Is the presence of God. When you carry the Hashem, you carry the presence of God. Jesus is Hashem. He is the literal presence of Yahweh. He is the literal presence of Yahweh. That's why he, that's why Jesus is called Hashem. He is the presence of Yahweh. Come on. And we have been called to be his name bearers, to bear his name, to carry his name, to lift up his name. That is what we've been called to. When we begin to do that, we, uh, we, we, bring, back his, uh, we bring back God's image in our life. And this leads us to a part of my message that, if you're watching this, this might be the only reason why you tuned in, uh, the mark of the beast, right? I was like, how does the mark of the beast fit in with all this? So what is it? it seems so different. Well, here's the thing. When we think of the mark of the beast, what do we think of? 
We think of 666, we think of a number. But what's, what's really fascinating is this whole thing, the mark of the beast, it's not actually about a number. It's actually about the anti-name. It's an anti-name. Like we understand the antichrist, well, this is the anti-name, the anti-name. This is, well, let's, let's, let's get into it. So Revelation chapter 13 it describes these beasts, one coming out of the water, one on the land. And, and basically it's, 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 this, it's the world going to hell. This is what the, it's a real bad, bad place. People think, oh, this, we're in this time. Come on, you know, this isn't. You know, when, when you, if you grew up during World War II, you, you, you would think this is the end times, right? And we do, we do those people who went through horrible things, this service, when, when we say we're in that time now when we're still living in luxury, having glasses of water. Anyway, that's a side note. Yeah, let's get into it. So it's about these beasts coming out, and then when these beasts began to do things. And verse, verse 16, also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. On the right hand or the forehead. What does that mean? Where is John, where's John getting this from? What's John the Revelator? So John the Revelator who wrote, who, who wrote the, the book of Revelation, where's he getting this from? They put a mark on their right hand or their forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name. The name of the beast. It's the anti-name. The name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the, the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. And his number is 666. You know, we get fixated on the number, right? And we'll lose sight of what it's actually about. It's about, it's, about, it's about the name. No one actually knows what 666 means or re- represents. A lot of scholars, scholars there's a lot of, they think, oh, actually, maybe it, it, um, it means Nero. Nero was the emperor during this time who was persecuting, killing Christians. Killing Christian Nero, he was the emperor, and and his and his number has a num, uh, uh, has a numeral values to it. And his name, if you spell it in a certain way, or or, or add up to six six six, many believe that's what it is. And and also it also spells Titans, and Titans are uh, are connected to the uh, to the Nephilim and things like that. But we get fixated on the numbers, but we lose fact of what it's actually about. It's actually about the anti name. It's about the name. This is what we what it's about. It's about Whose name do you carry? Whose name are you choosing to carry? That's what this is about. Whose name do you choose to carry? It, it, it's, it's a metaphor for, for who do you align yourself with? Who do you align yourself? Who do you represent? Do you represent Jesus or do you represent the beast? This is what it's about. Who do you represent? See, whenever you find a difficult passage in Scripture, you know, it's really, you know what I love about the Bible? The Bible interprets itself. So you use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Because the name or the mark is not something that external that, that, that happens on us or in us. It's, uh, it's not. A, in fact, Jesus, what did Jesus say? Jesus said that it's not what comes in you that makes you unclean, right? That's what Jesus said. Jesus said it's not what comes in you that makes you unclean. What does he say? It's what comes out of your heart. What comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. It's not what comes in you. It's what comes out of you. Jesus goes on to say, from, from, from the heart, your mouth will speak. So whose name are you carrying on your heart? Because, because, because what's inside your heart reveals the name you carry. What's inside your heart will reveal the name that you carry. It's the anti-Shema. It's the anti we, we sung it right in the beginning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the most famous prayer in Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. The anti, it's a Shema. 
And this is the anti-Shema. Because when we read Deuteronomy chapter 6, where this comes from, God told Israel that the Shema was to be as a sign on your hand or your forehead. Well, where, where did I hear that from? Right? And what they would do, and so they would, someone would take it literally and they would tie it, the Shema to their forehead or to their hand, what they call phylacteries. And they would, and actually would wear it. Why? It was to remind them of their loyalty to the name, to, to Hashem, tying it to the hand. The forehead represents the ideological commitment, my thinking. This is what the forehead represents, my thinking. Where's my thinking? And the hand is the practical outworking to my commitment, what I do. So whose name do you bear? Because it will come out in your thinking and in your outworking of your hands. I can tell you whose name you bear by, by what you do, by your actions. See, you're not saved by faith, but faith proves your, but your actions prove your faith. By what you do, what you're thinking and what you do with your hands. So what does it mean for us today? Whose name do you carry? Nassar. Whose name do you carry? What do you carry in your heart? Because what you carry comes out in your thinking and the outworking of your hands. What's inside your heart reveals the name that you carry. See, the mark of the beast is not the vaccine. It's not the vaccine. I, I, I had to say that. If you, don't, if you don't believe me, maybe you'll believe Jesus. When Jesus said, it's not what comes in you that makes you unclean, but what comes out of your heart. See, we can't make Scripture say things that it, doesn't, it clearly doesn't say. We can't just pick and choose. I'm going to use this. Oh, it means, it means the vaccine. We can't do that. The Scripture does not say that. Jesus said, it's not what comes in you that makes you unclean, but what comes out of your heart. What's in your heart? That's more important than any vaccine. What is in your heart? Whose name do you carry? Hashem. Whose name do you carry? What's inside your heart reveals the name that you carry. Who do you represent? Whose name do you bear? See, when you carry the name, you love your neighbor as yourself. You love your anti-vaxxer or your pro-vaxxer as yourself. When you carry the name, you are well aware of the real need that's around you in your community. There is power in the name. There is power in Hashem. This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, this is what he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him Hashem, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Come on. In the name, you have freedom. In the name, you have true peace. In the name, you are loved. In the name, you are accepted. You can build your life on the name that cannot be shaken by any storm. The name has the power to, to defeat and uproot every lie in your life. Come on. The name has the final say of what happens to me in this season, this phase of my life. The name has the divine power to demolish 
every stronghold and defeat every demon in your life. Come on, Hashem. There is power in the name. There is power in Hashem. Well, you know, this, that sounds great, but that doesn't apply to me because I'm divorced. Because of what I've done, I've defaulted myself from carrying His name. Well, that doesn't apply to me because I've got addictions. And I keep going back like a, like a dog back to his vomit. And that's me. I'm living in vomit. Well, this doesn't apply to me because I've messed up over and over again. This doesn't apply to me because I've defaulted myself. Come on. If God can do it for the Apostle Paul, who called himself the sinner of all sinners, then he sure enough can do it for you. And he can do it for me. That's why the Apostle Paul will go on to say that anyone who calls upon Hashem, anyone who calls upon the name will be saved. There is power in the name. There is power in Hashem.